Okay, you can turn to Malachi chapter 1. In remembering some of the things that we talked about last week, we remember that Israel was not in a good state when Malachi was written. The people of God were not in a good place when the word of the Lord came to Malachi. This was around 100 years after they'd returned to Jerusalem, after about 70 years in Babylonian captivity. At this point, the temple had been rebuilt, but it you know, didn't hold a candle to the one in Solomon's day. Uh, things were not really functioning all that well. They were back in their homes, in their home city and stuff, but their situation looked very little like what they expected. They were without a king, really without a lot of godly leaders. Their priests had come to teach falsehoods while calling them truths. Their men had come to forsake their marriage covenants to their wives. Their worship had lost its joy and meaning, and they were just really altogether apathetic about their walk and relationship and the things of God. They had forgotten who God was, and they had felt forgotten by God. And their view of God had become so small that their religious activity only affected the very surface of their lives. And so as we begin today, I just want to start with a really tough question. As we begin today, ask yourself the same question. Am I in that boat? Does my relationship with God only affect me on a very surface level? Has your view of God become so small that your faith only affects just certain parts and surface areas of your life? Maybe you come to church, but it doesn't really change the way you're living. Maybe you talk about God, but you rarely spend time in his word or in prayer. Maybe you say that you're a Christian, but you have reason to doubt or you think that you have reason to doubt. Maybe those closest to you doubt that you're a Christian based on your behavior even. I think the slide from religious activity, and I'll put activity in quotation marks, the, the slide from religious activity to complacency isn't that far of a slide when we forget who God really is. And Israel had forgotten who God really was. Malachi reveals right at the very beginning Israel's biggest mistake, and we'll talk about that. Let's read the text together. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll pray. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we're shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we're going to be tempted to ask very similar questions to Israel to this week and in the weeks to come. We're going to be tempted to have the same kind of viewpoint as them. And I pray that as you answer them in your wisdom with the backdrop of love, Lord, I pray that we would receive these answers in our hearts even still today. This message was given to your people a long time ago. And yet, the corrections that are found in it, the hope that's found in it, still very much apply to us. And so we're thankful for this message from the Lord. 
from your lips to us through Malachi. Thank you for these things. Change us with them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, before we get to verses 2 through 5, which really is kind of the description of Israel's biggest mistake, let's talk about verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Oracle, that word just literally means burden. The burden of the word of the Lord. So literally the verse could read this way. The burden of the word of the Lord to Malachi. For Israel to Malachi. Okay? Have, have you ever felt like the word of God was a burden? And, and I don't necessarily mean in a negative sense. We'll come to that. But just in, in just the weightiness of it. Have you ever felt like the word of the Lord was that way? Preachers feel like this every Sunday. Just to give you a little insight. You could probably imagine. The weight of God's word communicating that. I'm a sinner like you guys. To stand here and try to communicate what the Lord means to his people is a weightiness. It's a burden to us as pastors. If you've ever read scripture, read his word, and been confronted by something in your life, called out, convicted, something that maybe even distraught you, you understand this too. You've felt that the word of God is kind of a burden Why is it called this way? Well, this is the word of the Lord, and we're called to hear it. I think this is the reason it's a, we call it a burden because when we're a sinner and we hear what God says about sin in our life, we hear what God has done about sin in the world through Jesus Christ, about his death, about his resurrection, we're moved to consider our own souls in all of this. If God feels this way about sin, that he would send his only son to die on a cross, then what does that mean for the sin in my life? It, it causes us to stop and consider what this means for us and consider the day of judgment. Because if what God is saying in his word is actually really true, then everything has to change, right? I don't think that's a, a dramatic statement. I think it's truth. If, if what God says in his word is true, then our lives can't remain the same. Because they were once dominated by sin, held under the sway of the evil one. And when the the message of hope and the gospel comes and breaks through all of that, and God miraculously saves you, your life is no longer the same. It can't be. It's not a a bad thing that it's a burden, that it has this weight to it, but it is a discernible thing in our lives. And it's it's so vivid and, and excellent that we can't stay the same. For an Old Testament prophet... I think it was also a burden because they expected people wasn't, weren't going to listen, especially the nation of Israel. They, they expected it. I mean, the nation of Israel frustrated guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Ezra, and maybe even Malachi to some extent, and others too. And so often the word of the Lord was met with opposition, and it was a burden to those carrying it and proclaiming it because they just knew that people weren't going to listen and they were going to oppose it. They would ignore it. And so the burden that... Malachi is referring to the oracle or the burden is twofold. It's positive and it's negative. It's positive because of its important and its importance and its weight to us as Christians. These are the words of God, the creator. These are his words, but it's also a negative burden because many people will oppose it and reject it. It was to Israel, it says, not just the northern tribes, not just the southern tribes. This was to all of Israel here. 
Now, if you look at the name Malachi in your Bible, it, it probably has a little footnote next to it. And if you look, mine does, and it says Malachi means messenger. My messenger could also mean angel, messenger, uh, could messenger of Jehovah in the Hebrew. It's Malak. It means my messenger. Okay, so there's there's some debate over whether Malachi is actually the name of a physical person who wrote this, or whether it's just my messenger as an anonymous title to whoever did write it. Um, if it's if it's that, if it's just noting an anonymous writer, it would probably be the only. Old Testament prophetic book that does it that way. So I tend to think that it's more an actual title for the name. This is Malachi, a guy named Malachi. And that's for our purposes in understanding the book. We'll consider it that way, as this is a man named Malachi who God gave this message to. So then we come to verse 2. Look at this with me. This is Israel's biggest mistake that I see. And it's this, doubting the love of God. Okay, so verse 2 starts with maybe the most beautiful phrase, message, any prophet could give, any preacher even today could ever say to a group of listening people, and it's this, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, I don't often call your attention to the New Living Translation, but I think there's a paraphrase here that frames this statement pretty well. It says this in the New Living Translation, I have always loved you, says the Lord. I think there's some value to that because it, it kind of speaks to the perfect tense that this is written in, in the Hebrew. Uh, you could say it this way. I have loved you. I do love you. I will love you, says the Lord. So I think this is a clear and current for Israel at the time especially. This is a clear and current declaration of the love that God has for his people. Okay, And this is the burden of Malachi. The unfailing love of God. This is what he's trying to communicate to the people right off the bat. God sends this message to his people. Remember, when they were without a king, without a priest, or really any other prophet besides what's being spoken to Malachi here, God says this to his people when they were just, in their eyes especially, just a shell of what they had been. And certainly just just a, a shadow of what they thought they were going to be according to the promises of God. They become satisfied with formality and worship, but they lacked any power. Consider this too. After Malachi, for about 400 years, there's no other voice to the people of God. Not until John the Baptist comes announcing the advent of the king. It's these words that are ringing for hundreds of years in Israel's minds, in their ears. The last message of Isaiah's thunder had died away. Jeremiah's lamentations were almost forgotten. Malachi, as kind of the last prophet here, comes saying, I have loved you. And right through his whole prophecy, I think that's the major thrust of the message. That's the background, the backdrop to all of Malachi. And I hope we'll remember that as we get into this. We could say that it all starts with the love that God has for his people. And I think we'd be right. But if we kind of reduce that down just a little bit, we could just say it all starts with the love of God. And if we reduce that down even further, we could speak another truth, and it would be this. It all starts with God. The love that God has, the love for who his people, it all starts with him. 
This love that God has for Israel wasn't because they had proved their worth beforehand either, was it? It wasn't because they had shown special belief or faith as a nation. They had turned God's love on them by that sort of thing. They hadn't even shown incredible fortitude of character that caused God to set his affection on them at all. He chose them out from among the other nations to be his very own. It it, it really is as simple as that. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verses 6 through 8. These are in your notes. You can look it up in your scriptures as well. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Can can we doubt this love of God? Was it because of anything in Israel? No, it was his choice. He called them out from among all the other peoples on the face of the earth, it says. God called them out. It's God's clear and beautiful declaration of compassion and love on his people. He's saying, I have loved you. But God's love was doubted by Israel. Look at how they respond in verse 1. He says, I've loved you. But the people answered and they said, how have you loved us? Quoting the New Living Translation again, it sounds like this. I've always loved you, says the Lord. But you retort, really? How have you loved us? I feel like maybe this is the same feeling that our kids have. When we tell them, look, I'm disciplining you because I love you. Kids, you love to hear that, I'm sure. You know, they hear us say we love them, that our discipline is out of love, but they sometimes don't receive it as love because what we're disciplining them for is exposing sin in their life or because it's requiring something of them. They see you taking away their driving privileges or their video game privileges or... Um, maybe even sometimes using a, a paddle in the course of correcting them. And it doesn't feel much like love in their eyes. But moms and dads, if our discipline is done according to Scripture correctly, it absolutely is love, isn't it? God's people at this point in Malachi are looking around at the, the lackluster temple at the walls that were rebuilt, but, you know, they're not as great as they once were, at the, the worship and at their just their lives, their homes, their, their nation in general. They're looking around at all of these things and sometimes the results and consequences of their own hard-heartedness. And it doesn't feel much like God loves them, but he does. That's what he's saying. I've loved you. Really, the people ask. How have you loved us? We don't believe you. Show us. Prove it. What's the implication of that that question? How have you loved us? I think it's twofold. Number one, they don't believe God. He says, I've loved you. And they say, how have you loved us? And they, they don't believe him. And secondly, the implication is that they felt like they deserved a whole lot better than what they had. Right? Can you relate to this at all in your own life? You know, we maybe you've gone through a difficult trial, something hard, and you've wondered 
Maybe exactly what Israel is asking here. You've wondered this. If God really loves me, then why did, and you could fill in the blank, why did this happen? Why is this the way that it is? Why do I suffer while people who don't care anything about God seem to prosper? This is a question that's approached in the Psalms often. Israel was there. And this was the cry of their hearts. And I imagine that we've probably all wondered the same thing at some point in our lives. Maybe you're wondering it today. And so I would encourage you and challenge you, don't miss God's answer here. Okay? God's faithful love was declared. He said, I love, I've loved you. But now it's being doubted. And Israel shifts the burden of proof over to God. They say, prove it. Prove that you really love us. Now, before we get into God's response, notice something with me here. Israel's not really in open rebellion. Right? I mean, it, it may in their hearts be that. But they're not shaking their fists in God and abandoning temple worship and sac- the sacrificial system, right? They're bringing their offerings. They're, they're bringing these things. They're tithing to some extent. Commentator G. Campbell Morgan says, They have been most particular and strict in outward observances, but their hearts have been far away from God. And so they ask that question, how have you loved us? They were doing all of their religious activity activity under the delusion that because they had brought their offerings and fulfilled their duty, they had been true to God all along. That may have been true that they brought these things, but their hearts were still far from him. And the Lord points this out. Look at verses two, the end of two through the beginning of verse three. Here's God's response. The people say, how have you loved us? Here's what the the Lord says is not Esau, Jacob's brother declares the Lord. Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. Let's pause there. God's faithful love was declared, right? And now his love is doubted. And now he's demonstrating his love through the lives of their ancestors, of Jacob and Esau. These couple of phrases about Jacob and Esau have had a pretty strong effect on just about everybody who hears them in one way or another. Some will ask, they'll say, If God is a God of love, you know where I'm going with this. If God is a God of love, then how could he hate Esau? Others might ask, why did God choose to love Jacob? So I'll just say this here. I I, I do think that there's a reason God had Malachi start right off the bat, right out of the gate in his this book with such a challenging and unconventional concept. We'll come to that a little bit later. Put a pin in that. We'll come back to it. Before we get to the word hate, though, there's a little phrase that I think and I hope will keep us on track in this discussion. And it's the the first part of God's answer. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Is anyone else surprised by that answer? They say, prove your love to us. And God says, isn't Esau Jacob's brother? Does that surprise? Maybe it's just me. You know, the people are saying, how have you loved us? Prove it. And he just says, well, think about your heritage. Think about your forefathers. God could have picked any number of miraculous things in Israel's history to point back to to prove his love, right? The the plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the fire and smoke pillars, 
water from a rock, manna from heaven, a talking donkey, fire from heaven with the prophets of Baal, and any other number of miraculous events in Israel's history, he could have pointed to and said, look how I've loved you, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't do it at all. Instead, he just says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Well, if you were an Israelite, you knew the answer to that question. Without batting an eye, you knew they were brothers. And not only were they brothers, but they were twin brothers. In the womb, at the same time, they shared a mother, Rebecca, born to them, her and Isaac. The Israelites would have known, too, that not only was Esau and Jacob, were they twins, but Esau is actually older than Jacob. And because he was the older brother, he should have received the blessing the birthright, all the wonderful inheritance that would have come from Isaac being his father. And I think the point that God is getting at by answering Israel in this way is very simple. And I'm glad it's so simple, but I think it's very simple. And it's just this, Israel, I chose you. I didn't have to. I could have chosen your brother, Esau, but I chose you. Now, make note of this. I think this is also important. When Jacob and Esau are spoken here in Malachi, remember, they're representing the nations, right? Jacob, his name was later turned to Israel. Uh, Esau's descendants are known as the Edomites. That's why in this text uh, they mention Edom. So when God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, he's essentially saying this. He's saying, Based on what Jacob and Esau were, in and of themselves, I could just have, just have, I could have just as easily picked Esau over you. I could have done it. Yet in his sovereign wisdom, God chose Jacob and passed over Esau for this. And I think this is really what's behind this statement. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. God loving Jacob and hating Esau has very little to anything to do with the human emotions that we associate with loving and hating. These words, I think, are used for comparison in these verses to emphasize the favorable treatment of Israel and answering their demands of how have you loved us. This is God's answer. He's he's expanding and, and showing proof of how he's actually really loved them. And he started way back at the nation's founding, right? He says, Israel, I chose you. Jesus used the term hate in a very similar way when he was talking about being being his disciple. Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He uses the same word, hate. Matthew 10.37 helps explain this a little bit more. He says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So I hope it's obvious in Jesus' teachings that you're not actually supposed to hate your father and mother in the way that we use that word. right? Because multiple times, including way back in the Ten Commandments, what does he say about your father and mother? Honor them. Right? Respect them. Show them reverence. So Jesus isn't saying hate them in that way. He's just using this as a term of comparison. And he's saying, look, show so much devotion 
and love toward Christ that compared to the love you have for your physical families, it looks like you might even hate them. You don't love them anything like you love Jesus. Love Jesus so much that in comparison, it looks like you might even hate your family. He doesn't actually mean hate them, just just to follow him, to be his disciple. You have to always prefer Jesus over them, to choose him. God's love for Jacob was so great that in comparison, his actions towards Esau could be perceived as hatred. He says, Jacob have I loved, Esau I've hated. Think about this too. Of all the world, of all the men in the world at the time, God called Abraham, right? The world full of people, not as many as today, but there's a world full of guys. Abraham didn't know the Lord, but God called him. God chose to set his special affection on Isaac rather than on Isaac's brother Ishmael, right? Now, the Jews could say, well, I get that, right? Ishmael was born from another woman, not of the, the promised seed, right? So we get that, but now we've got twins in the same womb. They can't say, they can't excuse it any other way. They can't say any of those things. God chose to love Jacob and accept him while rejecting Esau. The Apostle Paul, in the middle of, you know, one of the most... Uh, one of the greatest doctrinal books we have in Scripture in Romans, he refers to this story. And I don't want to spend a lot of time. This isn't about Romans chapter 9. But I do think there's some helpful um, clues in that, in that text to help us understand Malachi chapter 1 a little bit better. I think Paul points out Jacob and Esau in this verse. He actually quotes Malachi chapter 1 verse 2. But he does it for, for a specific reason. So these are in your notes, but you can turn to Romans 9, 10 through 13. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older, older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul gives us a little clue of, of why it is the way that it is here. God chose to set his affection on Jacob. And he did it in that way so that the purpose of election might continue. Romans chapter 9 verse 11 clearly says. But God's love isn't something, or it isn't set on someone because of their works, Paul says. But on what? It depends on him who calls. It all starts with God. Remember us saying that earlier? Now, I get it. Admittedly, this is not an easy thing to wrap our heads around. And so often, maybe you're like me and you you hear these sorts of things and you're like, well, wait a second. I think I need to correct you on this, God. Do you ever think that? Maybe you don't like literally think those thoughts or say those words, but in your heart, there's a stirring and you're like, well, wait a second. This is This doesn't seem right. We say, well, God, that's not really fair. You know, your love needs to be displayed evenly in order for it to be correct. Paul addresses that very question in the next few verses in Romans chapter 9, 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God being unfair? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. 
I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, listen, listen to this. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And that's where we're going to need to land on all of this if we're going to make sense of what God is saying to the people of Israel in the book of Malachi. It depends not on human will or exertion or even their heritage, but on God who has mercy. Why did God choose Jacob? Why did God choose Isaac? Why did God choose Abraham? The debate about these things will probably go on for a long time. But maybe a better question for us to ask today is, why would God choose anyone? Maybe we think that God's choice would be better placed on someone who is like the most excellent model of what it means to be a Christian. God would choose, I can see why God would choose that person. But that person doesn't exist, do they? The, The first three chapters of Romans blows that idea right out of the water. That person does not exist anymore. It's not gonna happen. The fact remains, it doesn't depend on human will or effort, but on God who has mercy. And, and the fact remains that God has chosen to love his called out and special people. But he doesn't love them only when they're doing everything right. And this is kind of what Malachi's purpose in writing this is too. Now, I, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I think when our lives demonstrate a godliness that comes from walking by the Spirit in obedience, God is surely pleased and glorified in his people. Right? Jesus says that if we really love him, what do we do? Obey his commands. If you really love him, you're going to follow him. You're going to obey him. And yet, in his mercy, God loves people even when they fall short of that goal. God loves his people faithfully, and God loves his people unconditionally. He chose Israel for himself over Esau. He chose Jacob, or Israel, before the twin brothers, Paul says, had done anything, good or bad, in the same womb. And here's the thing. Nobody twisted God's arm to do that. When he chose Israel, he did it freely. God's faithful love was declared. He said, I have loved you. It was doubted. The people said, well, how have you loved us? And now his love is being demonstrated through the nation of Israel and even through the nation of Edom through Esau's descendants. Look at verses 3 through 5. These verses go into some detail about the comparison of love displayed to Jacob and Esau. That's what I think these verses do. He says, I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. The ESV uses the word jackals. The, the King James Version translates it dragons. The kid in me would, re- would really like that to mean Dragons. That breathe fire? I don't know. Maybe it is. Uh, that's the, the word is only used one other time in Scripture in the book of Micah. And the meaning there doesn't really help us understand whether it's a jackal or a dragon. Um, either way, the picture being painted is not good. Okay, So whether the land is, is roamed by jackals who just devour everything, or whether it's roamed by dragons... It's not exactly a place you want to live, okay? You don't want to settle down in a place like that. And it's certainly not the land flowing with milk and honey that Israel had been promised, right? And that's the comparison that's being made here through Malachi. And he says, they may build, the descendants of Esau, 
the Edomites. They may build, but I will tear down. Again, God's making the comparison between what those people seek to do in their own effort and what he, his action will be. He says, they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. This is probably the most alarming of all of the comments about Edom. I read a commentator this week who said this, this is the most devastating of the judgments and the one that makes all the others just. God does not bring judgments on an innocent people. He is just in all his dealings. When he passed over Esau and chose Jacob, there was no decree that an innocent Esau would be judged. Rather, what God decreed was to pass Esau by to withhold his electing love and to give him up to wickedness. And I think when we read Romans chapter 1, we see this sort of thing still happening today. The hearts of men and women would rather suppress the truth of God than submit to it. You know that in your own heart, and you can see it in our culture. We would rather suppress the truth than to submit to it. And so in Romans chapter 1, God gives people over to the lusts of their hearts, and they continue in their slide into sin. Again, this isn't easy to wrap our human minds around. I'm not... I'm, I'm not a guy who's standing before you who has all of this figured out, okay? Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that we only see through like a glass dimly right now. There still remain things that we cannot understand perfectly, but surely, I would hope, based on what we can plainly see from the text, we can know that God did not choose the descendants of Esau to be his special people to place his love on, to use in service to him. He didn't use the descendants of Esau. Instead, he passed over them and he set his love on Jacob, on Israel. And when that happens, the Edomites then gave way to their wickedness and earned the anger and judgment of God. It doesn't mean that there was no blessing found to them when Jacob and Esau are reunited later in life. There's pretty good evidence that Esau had a lot in worldly wealth. But there's hope here in verse 5 that I want to point out. There's hope for an apathetic and unsatisfied and doubting Israel. So if you feel that way, maybe you've identified with Israel more than anybody in this sermon so far, and you're saying, yeah, my life is not going how I expected it would go. Things are not lining up how I expected when I said yes to God. Where is he? Prove your love to me, God. There's hope here for you. I hope you'll see it. People of Israel, in verse 5, they will see and be reminded of the greatness of God when they consider the fate of Esau's descendants. The Edomites would attempt to rebuild their cities, and yet God would stand against their efforts. Israel, on the other hand, would be restored. And we see that. They're both taken into captivity at different times. Israel ends up being restored. The Edomites, not so much. John MacArthur says, Though complete restoration has been delayed, it will come, and the nation will bear witness to God's gracious rulership, both within as well as beyond her borders. What does verse 5 say there? They will say, they will see God's choice and his love played out, and how he preferred Israel, and they will say, great is the Lord beyond our borders, beyond the borders of Israel. Great is the Lord. Now, I told you that we'd 
come back to the reason that I think God had Malachi start the book with such a tough and unexpected concept. I think the, the answer to that is really simple as well. I think it's to teach us to fear the Lord. I read this week that Malachi shows us a God whose goodness will make us tremble with reverent fear. Just flip through with me. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. If then I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. Chapter 1, verse 14. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Chapter 2, verse 5. My covenant with Levi, with them, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So when Malachi kicks off this prophecy to Israel in chapter 1, with the really good news of, I have loved you, says the Lord. He reveals the love of God for us in a way that should make us tremble before the majesty of such a God. When the love of God is revealed to you, do you look for all the reasons why it might not be fair? That's what Israel was doing. They doubted God's love. They shifted the burden of proof to him. Prove it, they said. We don't believe you. When you, when you hear somebody like me talk about the love of God for even you, do you just think about all the things that aren't fair about it? Well, I'm glad he might love me, but what about that person? Why doesn't he love that person? See, we, we tend to shift the burden of proof back to God even still. God, why would you do this? Maybe you avoid standing in awe of him because it just doesn't make sense to you. Can't wrap your head around it. You can't figure him out and so you don't fear him the way that you should. You don't tremble before Him in awe. Or maybe when His love is revealed, does it cause me to fall down in awe and marvel at His love at a sinner like me? Why did God treat a scoundrel like Jacob? If you know Jacob, at least the first half or so of his life, that's a good way to describe him. Why did God treat a scoundrel like Jacob with such kindness and compassion? Because of His unfailing love. And sovereign grace. Maybe a more potent question is this. Why would God choose to love a scoundrel like me? Like you. But you know what? The answer is the same. Because of his unfailing love and his sovereign grace. These hard truths aren't here, I don't think, for us to fight and fuss over. I think they're here to cause us to stand in awe of the God of love, whose mercy will be magnified in choosing anyone. Remember what we learned from Peter, especially at the end there. In his kindness, in his patience, we are living now in the age of salvation. His love for you extends today. And his love is good. Because of his unfailing love, Christ came to save sinners like me and like you. 
He lived perfectly and died sacrificially to save every person who calls on his name for salvation. Another question. Why would God love us so much that he would send his own son to die in our place? The answer is the same. Because of his unfailing love and sovereign grace given out to sinners. I'm not sure I can explain that all to you. Except to say that he's God and he's good. His salvation freely extends to every person, all of those who say, Lord, I see your love and I want to respond to it by faith. That's for you. The way he tells us to. He told us to respond this way in repentance and faith. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Repent and believe. This was, this was the message of John the Baptist, right? Repent, believe the gospel. Message of Jesus, repent and believe the gospel. The message of the early church, repent and believe the gospel. Guys, that's what the Lord is speaking to you. Repent of your sin and believe the gospel. The good news that Christ came and died in your place. The question then becomes, well, when do we respond this way? Do I respond when I'm older? Do I respond when I've tried everything else first? Do I respond when I'm at the absolute lowest point of my life? I would say yes, but don't wait until then. If you're in those moments, yeah, respond to God now. But don't wait until you're older to respond the right way. Don't wait until you're at your absolute lowest to respond to God in that way. God says that there is a a right time to respond in repentance and faith. You can probably guess when that is. It's today. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Now is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. Respond today in gratitude. Stand in awe of God's love that he would save anyone, much, much less somebody like Jacob or much less somebody like me or you. Let that cause us, in, his, in view of his goodness, to cause us to, to tremble with reverent fear and to say, God... You are worthy of all glory and honor because I am unworthy of any love you have. And yet, you chose me. You saved me. And so I'm going to respond in repentance and faith and now live my life for you alone. I'd encourage you as we sing our last song together in just a moment, if you've never done that, that you would bow. You can do this right in your seat and bow and confess your sin to the Lord, repent of it, and turn by faith to Jesus Christ. If you'd like some help or some prayer in that, I'll be standing right up here in the front. Come up and grab me and we'll pray together and talk some more. But let's pray now. Lord, what a what a blessing it is to read words that still apply. Thousands of years old. A long time written ago. And yet, your message is still the same. I have loved you. And so, Lord, we're especially indebted to your love. And, Lord, there could be those who want to argue about all of these things, and there's a time and a place to dig through some of the big theological implications, Lord. But as we continue in studying Malachi, I pray that it's very clear, and the backdrop of all of this is your sovereign love and grace 
that mercy is magnified in how you, you chose Jacob. You could have easily have chose Esau as, as worked through another nation, and yet you chose to do it through Israel. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see how that connects all the way down through the years to us. We live in the age of patience, of salvation, so I pray, Lord, that you would move in our hearts to, to respond, not, not when we're older, not when we have you figured out, not when we're at our absolute lowest point, Lord, but today. Today is the day. Today is a favorable time to submit to your rule in our life and to be loved by you in a way that only you can do. Lord, help us to respond accordingly, according to your will and word. In your name we pray, amen.